Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to The Christopher Perrin Show, my podcast. In this particular episode, we're going to consider the question, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens, or what I like to call the sacred synthesis? Can the Greek and Roman tradition of classical thought be harmonized with what is taught in the Old and New Testaments or in the Christian tradition? This was the question that Tertullian was asking in the 200s AD. He actually asked this question in 198 AD. He was a North African, Latin-speaking church father, theologian. And this question has been called an enduring question. It continues to this day. How do we understand our inheritance of the classical Greek and Roman tradition as modern people? Well, Tertullian asked this question when Christianity was still quite young and was expanding around the Mediterranean and encountering regular bouts of persecution. As Christianity spread, Christians had to face the question of the claims that their faith made vis-a-vis the various pagan religions, philosophy, literature, and schools at a time when worshiping the pagan gods was a live option for these new Christians and a temptation for many. Second century Christians were, after all, former pagans themselves. For the Greeks and Romans came into the early church in large numbers, first in the lower classes of society, and then later those who were more aristocratic, more, more, uh, more of the ruling elite, you might say. But it started with the lower classes. In, in large numbers, Greeks and Romans came into the church. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, in an exchange with a skeptic, was told that the English should all return and go back to paganism. And Chesterton said, yes, let us go back to paganism. The pagans, they all became Christians. So, in the second century, uh, the Christians were then newly Christian in a culture that was still largely pagan. How ought they, these new Christians, assess their own classical pagan heritage, education, and ideas. Where should they send their kids to school? Now, when I use the word pagan, I'm not using that word in a pejorative sense at all. It's a designation for the classical Greek and Roman ideas and thought. Suffice it to say that Tertullian sided with Jerusalem solidly against Athens. He put forward this question in a book uh, arguing against heretics, heretics who had been poisoned in his view by the pagan Greek thought. It's his book, Prescription Against Heretics, where he writes this, What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? The church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic. Our principles come from the porch of Solomon, who himself taught that the Lord is to be sought in simplicity of heart. I have no use for a Stoic or a Platonic or a dialectic, by which he means Aristotelian, Christianity. After Jesus Christ, we have no need of speculation after the gospel, no needs of research. Once we come to believe, we have no desire to believe anything else, for the first article of our faith is that there is nothing else we have to believe. So writes Tertullian. Now we can note here that this well-put question by Tertullian is what we could call a disputed question. This makes it a great question for classical students and educators to consider, for the classical tradition of education does not shy away from addressing these kinds of questions and attempting to answer them. They are, however, disputed questions because they're hard to answer. 
And because thoughtful, holy people answer the questions in different ways, sometimes in ways that cannot be reconciled. We have our own disputed contemporary questions today, and in a future podcast, we'll be considering some of those. But back to Tertullian's enduring question. The question he asks is an enduring question because it continues to be a provocative, important, but disputed question. It was in 200 AD, a disputed question, and it is even today. It is a helpful and important question for classical educators and for leaders of the renewal of classical education to consider as well. For educators, it's important because it addresses our curriculum as well as our pedagogy. It makes us think carefully, at least it should. How do I teach, if you're a Christian, so as to glorify Christ, the ever-living Logos, the source of all truth? How do I assess, if I'm a Christian, non-Christian writers who also speak truths, but in a context that rejects the source of all truth? How do I, therefore, teach Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, and Cicero? Well, the philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, the emeritus professor of philosophy at Yale and also formerly at Calvin College, wrote an incisive essay about Tertullian's questions called, well, Tertullian's Enduring Question. For Tertullian, he writes, The stance of the Christian toward all attempts at worldly wisdom must be unrelenting opposition. That's Tertullian. Tertullian was staking out a position that was opposite of a rival that lived in his time, Clement of Alexandria, who cited this verse, seek and you shall find, to justify the study of extra-biblical writings. There are two ways of answering Tertullian's question. Opposition, represented by Tertullian, and supersession, represented by Clement. Supersession meaning incorporating and bringing into our understanding of Christian teaching, pagan and classical thought in an appropriate way. Filtering it, subsuming it, taking it in. Let's talk a bit about who Tertullian and Clement were. Tertullian was born around 160 AD. He was a prolific early Christian author from Carthage in the Roman province of Africa. He was the first Christian author to produce an extensive corpus of Latin Christian literature. He was an early Christian apologist and a polemicist against heresy, including contemporary Christian Gnosticism. Clement of Alexandria was born on 150 AD, He was a Christian theologian and philosopher who taught at the Catechetical School of Alexandria. That's Alexandria, Egypt. Among his pupils were Origen and Alexander of Jerusalem. So, they're both living in North Africa. Origen is Greek-speaking, Tertullian, Latin-speaking. In Tertullian and Clement, we see two possible Christian responses to the surrounding culture. Number one, Jerusalem really has nothing to do with Athens. This is, of course, Tertullian. They should live separately and fight it out until one wins. The contours of pagan classical thought oriented against the gospel, even while some truths are stated in classical literature. Read as a whole, for example, Plato is oriented away from the gospel. Why then study Plato? Interpret and assess writers like Plato not just to show difference, but to show opposition, to show Christianity as antithetical to Plato. In other words, let me show you how Plato is profoundly different from the Christian gospel. The assumption here is that human culture is in conflict, a conflict of religious visions and loyalties, a struggle over God and the good, a contest for allegiance. 
This is Tertullian, and this is disjunction and opposition. Classical thought is in disjunction and opposition from the Christian teaching and thought of the Bible. It's in an antithetical relationship. It is antithesis. That's number one. Number two, a different answer, is this one. Jerusalem absorbs anything that Athens has uncovered or engaged that is true, good, and beautiful, and that rightly belongs to Jerusalem or to God. It not only absorbs it, but it refines it and it puts it to its proper use. Pagan classical thought is not anti-Christian, but sub-Christian. Wolterstorff calls this view supersession and incorporation, and it's a form not of antithesis, but of synthesis. Clement, for example, says, Philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily until the Lord should call the Greeks. For this was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic mind, as was the law, the Hebrews, to Christ. This is from his Stromata. Now, this is a remarkable parallel that he's drawing. If you know your New Testament, you know that the Apostle Paul says that the law was to the Hebrews like a schoolmaster or tutor to bring the Hebrews into fellowship with Christ. And here, Clement is saying Greek philosophy plays the same role for the Greeks that the law played for the Hebrews, that Greek philosophy was a schoolmaster or tutor until such a time as Christ would come to lead them to Christ. Clement goes farther and he says, all that is good comes from God. If you've heard that phrase, all truth is God's truth, it may have originated in around 200 AD in Clement. All that is good comes from God if there is truth in some Greek philosophy insofar as it grasps truth, it comes from God. Citing John 1, Clement insists that the divine logos is the true light that enlightens every man such that any human's grasp of the truth is understanding that is sent from God. That is, we might say, the Clementine view. I like that word, Clementine, because it makes me think of a great fruit. The ancient Christian had a complicated relationship with pagan thought that needed to be and was sifted and worked out over time. The great Christian writers often displayed dual strains of thought, appreciating and valuing what they had learned studying Greek literature, philosophy, and rhetoric, even while warning against it. Jerome's a good example. Jerome, a contemporary of Augustine, living, say, in around 400 AD, writes with great rhetorical and persuasive power about all manner of Christian conviction and holiness, but is troubled by his own love of rhetoric and Cicero. He reports in a dream in which Christ comes to him and says, Thou art a Ciceronian. In other words, not a Christian. The Cappadocian fathers Basil and Gregory, who were brothers, great Greek church fathers, both grew up and were schooled in Greek literature and philosophy. In fact, both of them studied for years in Athens. Both are regarded as chief among the Greek fathers of the ancient church, along with, say, John Chrysostom. Basil, in particular, leaves us with a rich metaphor that describes the relationship between Jerusalem and Athens, the relationship between Christian teaching and Greek philosophy and literature. The metaphor he uses is that of the discerning and discriminating bee. How is it that the Christian scholar and student should be like a bee? Here's a passage taken from 
his letter to young men on the study of Greek literature. He's writing as an older teacher to young Greek scholars who are beginning to study and will be studying, say, great Greek literature, poetry, and philosophy. Here's his advice to them. He says this, Perhaps it is sufficiently demonstrated that such heathen learning, Greek learning, is not unprofitable for the soul. I shall then discuss next the extent to which one may pursue it. Therefore, the soul must be guarded with great care, lest through our love for letters or literature, it receives some contamination unawares, as men drink in poison with honey. So, is he being like Tertullian, or is he being like Clement? He says, it's not unprofitable, meaning it is profitable at times, to study Greek literature. And he's going to discuss the ways in which these young Greek scholars could indeed pursue the study of great literature. But he says it should be done with a guarded heart, with great care. Why? Because there can be some contamination contained in some of this Greek literature that could be like drinking poison in with the honey. So, it seems to be already echoing both Tertullian and Clement. But he goes on, but on the other hand, we shall receive gladly those passages in which they praise virtue or condemn vice. In other words, passages from Greek literature that praise virtue or condemn vice. For just as bees know how to extract honey from flowers, which to men are agreeable only for their fragrance and color, even so here also, those who look for something more than pleasure and enjoyment in such writers may derive profit for their souls. Souls can be profited by the study of Greek literature. He goes on. Now then, altogether after the manner of bees, must we use these writings. For the bees do not visit all the flowers without discrimination, nor indeed do they seek to carry away entire those upon which they light, but rather having taken so much as is adapted to their needs, they let the rest go. So here is Basil saying, we should be like the bee. It's making me think of Bruce Lee who says, be like water. Be like the bee, you young scholars, and adapt what you read to your needs, but let the rest go like a bee's apparently do as they discriminate and decide which flower upon which they will light and how to, which what kind of pollen they will gather and take to the hive to make honey. But let's continue with Basil. So we, if wise, shall take from the heathen books whatever befits us and is allied to the truth and shall pass over the rest. And just as in culling roses we avoid the thorns, from such writings as these we will gather everything useful and guard against the noxious. So now he's introduced a new metaphor. I mean, we have bees flying around flowers, and so he goes to another flower, the rose, and says when we are culling the rose, well, we want the flower but not the thorns. We're, we want to be careful to leave the thorns be lest they hurt us. So he's used poison as one example that can come in with the honey. And now he's saying avoid the thorns. He's also saying choose what flowers you go to and adapt them to your needs, comparing books and literature to flowers. But then he goes on and uses yet another metaphor. He says, so from the very beginning, we must examine each of their teachings to harmonize it with our ultimate purpose. 
according to the Doric proverb, testing each stone by the measuring line. Now, if you've been around builders, you've heard of the plumb line. You, you, hold, you hold a string with a weight on it, and, and that, there you get your straight perpendicular line for building up a wall, say. That's, that's about the extent of my knowledge of building, by the way. But a plumb line helps you to measure and to, to see if something is straight and properly aligned. And so he's using yet another metaphor. What is the plumb line to Basil? The plumb line would be the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of the Christian gospel. Anything that is read in, say, the Greek tradition, Greek literature, poetry, and philosophy, should be assessed according to the plumb line, that is, the gospel. So is Basil Tertullian or is Basil Clementine? Note Basil's statement of antithesis. He says, be careful you don't take in poison with the honey. Is this not Tertullian's concern? What does the church have to do with the academy, the Greek academy? There is a danger. Basil admits it. There is a danger to the Christian reading literature and philosophy. It can seduce or poison us, according to Basil. Let's turn to a contemporary poet for a moment. This is Liesel Mueller, a great poet. And this is a portion of a poem from a collection of her poems, Alive Together. And this excerpt is called, How I Would Paint the Big Lie. How I Would Paint the Big Lie. Smooth and deceptively small, so that it can be swallowed like something we take for a cold. An elongated capsule, an elegant cylinder, sweet and glossy, that pleases the tongue and it goes down easy, never mind the poison inside. I think Basil would enjoy that poem if he could read it. Basil, with some irony, by the way, follows Plato in banishing the stories of the immoral, warmongering gods. This is exactly what Plato says in Book Two of the Republic. Plato finds these stories corrupting and untrue, as does Basil. This represents antithesis in Basil, and it's kind of ironic that one of the great Greek writers and philosophers, Plato, seems to agree, at least on this point, with Basil. But note how Basil directly encourages synthesis. But on the other hand, he writes, we shall receive gladly those passages in which they praise virtue or condemn vice. Now then, altogether after the manner of bees must we use these writings, for the bees do not visit all the flowers without discrimination, nor indeed do they seek to carry away and tire those upon which they light, but rather, having taken so much as is adapted to their needs, they let the rest go. So here we have in Basil, this great Greek father, uh, an example of both antithesis and synthesis. Uh, the discriminating bee who knows what to take, what, what will bring nourishment, what will help the hive to make honey, and what should be let go? A kind of filtering process. So at times he is antithetical, avoid the poison, but at other times synthetical, make good use and be discriminating of the flowers of Greek literature that we can enjoy and profit from. And so, so ends this episode where we have at least set up what antithesis and synthesis could be as the classical tradition meets the biblical Christian tradition. 
In our next episode, we'll consider another great church father, this time a Latin-speaking church father, Augustine. And we'll see what he has to say about, about both Tertullian and Clement, or about both antithesis and synthesis. I'll see you then.